following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good morning, my brothers and sisters, on this Easter Sunday morning. I'm recording this message at the Ezra Institute from my study with my colleague Ryan Eris. This is an interesting and a challenging morning to be declaring the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. And I do so standing up because I've never been able to preach sitting down. Uh, We are coming today in difficult circumstances and all of us will be experiencing this morning, I'm sure, the sadness of separation at such an important time in the Christian calendar. So let me begin this morning by declaring our faith, and you can respond in the traditional way as we're accustomed to at Westminster Chapel. So I will say Christ is risen, and you can respond, he is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. This is the first Easter Sunday that I can remember anyway of not being with the family of God for worship. In the 12 years since Westminster Chapel was planted, we've also baptised people every Easter Sunday. And so I know that your hearts, like mine, must be heavy today, even in the midst of our rejoicing as God's people. Why is it that we are separated today? Well, in part, it's because in the late modern West, we are not used to the threat and proximity of death in a way that many other cultures are. All around us, all of a sudden, fear and the fear of death is in the air. We hear it on the airwaves. We see it in the empty streets and the silent parks. The coronavirus crisis reminds people of the reality of our own mortality, the reality of death. So what is it that we have to offer today in the face of the threat of death, the fever of panic and the grip of uncertainty? Well, the answer, friends, this morning is everything. We who do not fear death nor panic in the face of uncertainty must be prepared to declare and display our sure and certain hope whenever and wherever it is needed. So let's be reminded this morning of the words in Luke 24, verses 5 through 6. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has been resurrected. That is the central and the most extraordinary claim of the gospel message. Jesus Christ has broken the power of sin and the grave because he rose triumphant from the dead. This is the message that should set us apart today in our reaction to the current crisis. Today we celebrate life hope and victory, while many others are still gripped by doubt 
and fear. So this morning, I want to say something about false hope and true hope. About false hope and true hope. First, false hope. If ever there were on display the importance of a world and life view grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see it now. The noted missionary and Christian thinker, Leslie Newbigin, pointed out, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life story is a part? What is the real story of which my life story is a part? Today of all days, as Christians, we participate in the true story of which our life stories are an inescapable part. For today, our lives are hid together with the risen Christ in God. However, all around us, false conceptions of the human story and therefore a lack of belief and participation in Christ means there's a sense of panic, of hopelessness, of fear, of anxiety and despair. These things are all around us. At the same time, some of the secular prophets, the humanistic intellectuals, are hoping the crisis will open a window onto a new and better day through man's social planning. In many respects, this pandemic has highlighted again that we are an end-stage culture in the West in rebellion against God. We are all too ready to demand that the government save and deliver us, and we're happy to surrender measured judgment for media-driven secular prophecy. One of Britain's finest legal minds and former Supreme Court judge, Lord Sumption, recently expressed concern that some of the response to the COVID-19 pandemic is hysterical and warns of serious consequences. In an interview with BBC Radio 4, he said, the real problem is that when human societies lose their freedom, it's not usually because tyrants have taken it away. It's usually because people willingly surrender their freedom in return for protection against some external threat. And the threat is usually a real but is usually real but exaggerated. That's what I fear we are seeing now. The pressure on politicians has come from the public. They want action. They don't pause to ask whether the action will work. They don't ask themselves whether the cost will be worth paying. They want action anyway. And anyone who has studied history will recognize here the classic symptoms of collective hysteria. Hysteria is infectious. We are working ourselves up into a lather in which we exaggerate the threat and stop asking ourselves whether the cure may be worse than the disease. As Christians, of course, we have to be serious, but never hysterical. Epidemics have frequently brought the most fundamental religious questions of human life to the fore. We ask about our destiny, our hope and the meaning of life. And these things, these epidemics have reshaped political and cultural life in the process. One disturbing outcome seen historically is the growth of authoritarianism as people demand salvation by man. But I want to put it to you today, this Resurrection Sunday, that we need a Christ-centered 
not a man-centered response. Man's salvation is typically slavery, not the liberty offered us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Throughout history, people's willingness to surrender freedom for servitude and the gospel for secular prophecy is actually aided by a deep-rooted longing in people's hearts. We see some people hoping in this disaster for a redemptive rupture in the continuity of history. That is, a moment of crisis that might birth a better day. The reaction to the threat even becomes an ephemeral substitute unity, a unity for society, and the supposed basis of a new global solidarity. But in the response of the world, do we hear anything about God, his righteousness, justice, and salvation? Do we hear about Jesus Christ, our creator and redeemer, as the true source of meaning and unity, the man whose resurrection introduced the only real rupture in the continuity of history, the son whose return to consummate his kingdom will be the next one? So those are the false hopes which are on offer. What is the true hope that we have this morning as God's people? In view of this crisis and the response, I found myself thinking about the book of Job this holy week and Job's incredible declaration in chapter 19 that inspired one of the most powerful movements in Handel's Messiah. Most of us are familiar with Job's terrible suffering, the sudden and dramatic loss of his possessions, his wealth, his family and his health. In chapter 18, his friend, or his so-called friend, Bildad, fuels Job's preoccupation with death with an ungodly relish. And so we find Job in chapter 19 at his most harassed and disturbed, like so many today. He describes himself as a a traveller caught in a landslide as the sky darkens, as a disgraced ruler an uprooted tree, a man attacked by a vast army. And from our reading, you will notice in verses 13 through 19 that his formerly very well-ordered and satisfying family and social life has collapsed around him. He now feels isolated, rejected and lost. Perhaps we can sympathise a little more with Job today. One of us has lost this week a loved one in our church community. Some of us have suddenly lost our jobs. Maybe you can't pay the rent or the mortgage this month. Others have had to lay off valued employees. Some have watched their pensions and investments plummet and threaten all their future plans. And many of us are isolated even this weekend, from friends, family and community. Like Job, we may be asking, how are we to understand and cope with this? Where is God in it all? Well, one of the amazing things about the book of Job is the interplay we see from the beginning of the book, that's the prologue in chapters 1 and 2, between the hand of God and the work of Satan. The interplay between the hand of God and the work of Satan. 
In the heavenly court, in the opening scene, which is the context for understanding the entire book of Job, Satan suggests that the righteous and believing Job only follows and trusts God because he is so evidently blessed. Take that away, taunts Satan, and allow me to afflict Job, and he will curse you to your face. So Satan is given permission by God to afflict Job. In our circumstances today, even in our separation this Sunday, we must recognize the sovereign hand of God in allowing all that is taking place. Just look at verse 22. Even among his people. Job asks, why do you persecute me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? God is not estranged from the world. He's not confused by its turbulence, surprised by its sin or or absent from the wheel of history. Just at the moment we need him. Man's fallen reason, disconnected from God's word and God's covenant, may offer arrogant answers and solutions at this time. But God is not a helpless spectator on the edge of history, powerless to act. The God of scripture is fully engaged with his creation at every moment. Paul tells us so in Colossians 1. He's grieved over human wickedness. Look at Genesis 6. He's genuinely angry with those who pervert justice and shows his wrath every day. Look at Psalm 7. He pleads with the rebel to repent, Ezekiel 33. He reasons with the wanderer regarding sin, Isaiah chapter 1. He scoffs at the calamity of the wicked and the apostate, Proverbs chapter 1. And he rejoices over his people with singing, Zephaniah chapter 3. It is because of these things that we know God is at work sovereignly, even in our circumstances today, to warn, to judge, to speak, to save, to curse and to bless in terms of his covenant word in all of history. This crisis is no different. In verses 23 through 24 of our reading, Job expresses the hope that his desperate legal case before the heavenly court might be recorded in a permanent medium. He's lost his family, his wealth, his friends and the comfort of human society. And he fears death will cover him in oblivion. And he doesn't know why. He hopes his case will be inscribed in rock, in stone. And here we have a metaphor for God himself, the defender of his people. We are reading the book of Job today in the word of God, inscribed as Job prayed as a a memorial. It's in the word of God because God remembered Job in the midst of his testing. Why was Job finally delivered? Because Job knew the one who alone could redeem, justify and vindicate him. His friends couldn't save him. The doctors of his era couldn't save him. The state of his time couldn't save him. Such prayers for deliverance are actually familiar to us from the Psalms. Vindicate me, God, and defend my cause, praise the psalmist in Psalm 
43 verse 1. So look ahead into verses 25 through 27. And there we come to the very heart of Job's hope and the reality we are celebrating today. In the face of all his testing and suffering, Job is able to declare, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth or literally on the dust. Who is this Kingsman Redeemer that Job is speaking about? The Hebrew word Goel. Who is this Redeemer? Well, Job is actually clear that it is God himself. When everything in life fails us, Christ Jesus himself is our Kingsman Redeemer, who alone can vindicate and justify us before the heavenly court. Job knew he and his family were not sinless. This is why Job was so diligent to offer sacrifices and even send over the sacrifices to his sons and their wives. And we also know today that though we are his people, God's people, we are not sinless. We don't deserve nor can we earn our redemption and vindication. We are utterly dependent upon our Redeemer. Satan is doubtless at work in the midst of this testing, but God is also at work. And what is the great distinctive of this Redeemer who is the Lord in our text? The adjective living is the key. Job knows that his Redeemer lives. He lives. The fact that Job's redeemer lives is set in total contrast to Job's fear of disease and dying. Man dies, but the redeemer lives. What better message can we have today? What greater comfort can we have this Easter Sunday morning than knowing our redeemer lives in contrast to the fact that man dies? What is it that Job is so confident in? He's confident that his redeemer will stand on the dust at the last. And here we have Job looking ahead as in a vision to an eschatological reality, actually to the meaning of history. Job is utterly convinced that even though his present diseased and decaying skin will finally be destroyed yet I will see God in my flesh verse 26 yet in my flesh I will see God Job fully expects to have this experience of seeing God as a man not as a disembodied shade And this is why he uses the term I three times in verse 27 to emphasize this. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him. Man dies, but the Redeemer lives. Job's vindicator will rise. He will rise to speak in the heavenly court as both Job's witness 
and Defence Council. And we cannot help but see in this today anyone but the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous. Job declares, I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. Job must be counted among those in Hebrews 11 who died not receiving the thing promised at the time, but saw it by faith and welcomed it from a distance. In all his suffering, he had a vision of the resurrected Christ of the heavenly court. What is true for Job is surely even more true for us today because Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, has already planted his feet in the dust of the earth. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. He died upon the cross and lives and reigns today at the throne of God. Jesus Christ is risen. We see in these triumphant verses that Job's cry was not simply for legal justification and vindication by faith, but also it was a cry for renewal of relationship. A cry for the renewal of relationship. He knows that his eyes will look upon the Lord and not as a stranger, verse 27, but as a kinsman redeemer. Not as a stranger, but as a kinsman redeemer. And his heart longs within him for intimate fellowship with the Lord. Today, we may feel much has been lost. We may feel much is lost. We may even fear our bodies being attacked viciously by a virus, just as Job felt flayed and destroyed in his flesh. Yet despite all his suffering, he still longed to see the Lord. And in that partial sight, Job catches a glimpse of a final vision of history. A resurrected Lord and a renewal of relationship with the living God. A resurrected Lord and a renewal of relationship with the living Lord. In fact, he sees perhaps even to the end of history itself, where the resurrected Christ shall plant his feet again in the dust of the earth. Does your heart yearn within you today? Are you longing deep in your being to see one another? I'm longing to see you all. But even more, to know and see the resurrected Lord. Are you yearning in your innermost being for an unclouded relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? We are absolutely assured of that very thing this Resurrection Sunday. I know this is a difficult time, brothers and sisters. But it is also a special and precious moment right here in our living rooms gathered around a screen today. It's a precious moment. In these current circumstances, it would be easy to wish the time away. But the brilliant Christian apologist Blaise Pascal once advised us when he wrote, we do not rest satisfied with the present. 
We anticipate the future as too slow in coming, as if in order to hasten its course, or we recall the past to stop its too rapid flight. So imprudent are we that we wander in times that are not ours and do not think of the only one which belongs to us. And so idle are we that we dream of those times which are no more and thoughtlessly overlook that one which alone exists. For the present is generally painful to us. We conceal it from our sight because it troubles us. And if, and if it be delightful to us, we re- regret to see it pass away. We try to sustain it by the future and think of arranging matters which are not in our power for a time we have no certainty of reaching. We scarcely ever think of the present, and if we think of it, it is only to take light from it to arrange the future. The present is never our end, and the past and the present are our means. The future alone is our end. So we never live, but we hope to live. And as we are always preparing to be happy, it is inevitable We should never be so. Yes, today is painful to us. The present is painful to us. But let's not wish the day away, friends. Let's not wish the moment away. Let us live today and enjoy this day and rejoice in this day, despite our circumstances, and gaze upon our Redeemer by faith through his Holy Spirit. Let us all meditate again today upon the resurrection life that is ours in Jesus Christ as we hear him call us back to himself through our current circumstances. He calls us again to participate in his total victory and vindication over sin, death and the grave. For in his vindication is our justification. Friends, viruses have been with us for centuries and will be with us for years to come. Yet viruses are dead things. They do not live as such, but require a host to prosper. Analogous to sin in our hearts, they enter and then take control over the metabolism of the host cell to multiply and there exercise a deforming and parasitic operation. Much like viral disease in the body, sin is a parasite that seeks to deform, destroy and rob us of life. But Jesus Christ has come that we might have life and life in super abundance. John chapter 10 verse 10. His resurrection power is the only cure for sin and death. And his spirit is the antibody in the Christian life against the power of sin and temptation. What a joy it is to know this Easter that though the earth trembles and the mountains topple and though diseases come and viruses attack the body, we can say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my 
flesh, I shall see God, how my heart yearns within me. Amen. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.